0: Hi, Peter Borker here and welcome to today's edition of The Transition Guy. Now joining me today is John Ratliff, CEO of Scale Up Coaches and former CEO of Tree Answers. Thanks for coming in today. Thanks for having me. Now we're at the Scale Up Summit in Anaheim and I thought it would be a really good time to grab you and really speak about your journey because your journey has been quite a remarkable journey as an entrepreneur and actually there, is, there isn't much you haven't done really, is there? <laughs>
1: I'm sure there's plenty I haven't done, but no, yeah, I've I've been lucky enough to get lots of great business experiences along the way.
0: And you've really taken a business from my startup through to a scale-up through to sale.
1: Yeah, so the company was started, the call center company that I sold in 2012 was started in 1995, literally in a two-bedroom apartment that was zoned commercial, but it was where I lived and was where I started the business as well, so... It was a true startup. yeah, I pretty much did everything.
0: A lot of people, when they start their business, they very much have those dreams and ambitions of growing their business, but they never quite get there. How did you actually go on that journey?
1: Yeah, so it was a real struggle for the first six or seven years. In fact, uh, we were 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, and I couldn't really afford staff to be there the whole time. So you know, it was the call center business, I answered the phone literally around the clock for uh, several years and got completely burned out and and really kind of had a a crisis moment about three years in where I was sleep deprived and the business was kind of stalling and wasn't really going anywhere and the phone rang, it was about four in the morning and I hadn't been to sleep in about two days and I would finally fallen asleep and this buzzer goes off and... It's uh, it's another call, so I get up to take that call and I literally was broken, like I, I had had enough. So I was gonna rip our telephone equipment out, throw it down, and just go to bed and, and be done with the company. And in that moment where I reached out to kind of, you know, yank the telephone equipment, literally, not figuratively, out of the wall, uh, I had one of those, you know, your life passes before your eyes moments. and. Uh, in that moment, I realized it was going to really be bad and difficult and tough for the next several years, but I saw a little glimmer of light at the end of the tunnel. And it was that moment in that, that crisis, I think, that compelled me to keep going, and, and I got to see that if you know a, a few more years of hard work turned the corner. and then So it took about seven years to really be viable and, and build a real business.
0: How did you see that glimmer of hope? Because a lot of people, they get to that, they don't quite see the glimmer yeah and they chuck it in
1: yeah i you know we were so close to break even and i i just thought you know the nice part about the business the revenue was recurring so we just needed to get more of that predictable recurring revenue and i knew that that we were close and to and to give up at that point would have just been a kind of quitting for physical reasons i was exhausted i mean i was in every sense of the word exhausted but the business itself had built some real momentum and was starting to get, you know, kind of, we were building a name for ourselves, we were attracting more new customers, and the business was fine. I was the problem, and I think I saw in that moment if I could get myself fixed and figured out that the business had a real potential to, you know, to keep going. So, yeah, fortunately, I didn't follow through with my... We wouldn't be sitting here, obviously.
0: But the thing is now, you managed to do that... How did you overcome the next challenge, which was actually you doing it all yourself Yeah, and actually starting to have that trust in that team? What was that?
1: Yeah, so the, the, next, the next quintessential moment for us in, uh, about, at about the eight-year mark, we decided to try acquisition. So we were going to start to try and buy other companies, and we did a really small one at first. And, but it was far away. You know, We were outside of Philadelphia, and the acquisition was in Pensacola, Florida. So it wasn't across the street. and. Um, by having two locations like that so far apart, we had to build a team. I had to count on other people. I couldn't be in two places at the same time, and we did our next acquisition uh, uh, 60 days later. So we went from one to three in 60 days, and it was in that moment where we started to real or I started to really realize that I needed a team and I needed to really understand delegation. Not just I was a good abdicator. I was good at saying, "Ah, oh, you guys just handle that." but not following through. And I became really good at delegating and kind of building a a team out of necessity, Did you find it
0: easier to let go?
1: I did, yeah. When you're, you know, again, when you're exhausted and you're desperate, it's a lot easier to let go of stuff than when, you know, things are good and you can be a micromanager. So part of it was necessity. And I think part of it was just, it was time for me to let some stuff go. So yeah, it it was not a big, big problem.
0: So when you got to this stage where you're doing your acquisitions, you know your business goals, dreams and ambitions, how much have they changed from when you first started the business?
1: Well, I I think it's really interesting. So when I started the company, I kind of had a vague idea of where it might go or what it might turn into, which is absolutely nothing even close to what it looked like when it was finally done and it got sold. So I think sometimes we may get too specific in kind of that visioning exercise and thinking about, you know, what it's going to look like when it's finished. And we might limit our, because had I been really thoughtful about that, it probably would have ended up a lot smaller than what it ultimately turned into. I think we need to, we need to have some long-term, call it a BHAG, call it a 10-year goal, call it your Mount Everest kind of ideas. But I I also think we don't want to get too locked into every step of the way. And we want to leave a little room for serendipity to kind of intervene and
0: and you're yeah. growing and changing as a person anyway, so <clears throat> the next yeah. mountain you, isn't quite as visible yeah. until you grow into that position.
1: Yeah. I, I love the expression, you never cross the same river twice. Um, and you are growing, and, and every acquisition changed the complexion of the company. Every new significant hire would change the complexion of the company. And, yeah, we, we essentially grew 30x, 3-0, 30x in about an eight- or nine-year Stretch so you can imagine what it was like in terms of, you know, iteration and chaos and changes to the team and yeah, we constantly had to evolve.
0: Now you were basically a core center environment. We were which is really harsh. I mean <laughs> it's a tough environment to work in. It's a brutal job. It's brutal, yeah. absolutely. But one of the biggest things that you focused on was people. Yeah. And you really did put a great emphasis on people. Yeah. And what really brought that to line was the whole DreamOn programme. Yep. Can you tell us about that because, I mean, the investment that you actually made in your people was massively significant.
1: Yeah. So, you know, we had a problem like most call centers, we had high turnover. And interestingly, our frontline hourly employees, we had high turnover. Right. Our salaried employees, we had incredibly low turnover. So we were making some people really happy. We were making some people really unhappy. And you can imagine the conflict that that created inside the company. And, I was with a friend of mine in Canada who was in a similar business, and I said, hey, do you track your frontline employee turnover? We were at a conference, and he said, yeah, and and, he asked me, and I said, yeah, and and, uh, he said, well, what is it? And I said, oh, we're like 115%. And he looked at me, and he said, that's fantastic. And I thought, no, it's not fantastic at all. It's terrible, but why? And he said, well, our industry average is 150, and... I'm at 135, so I'm beating the industry average. You're really almost killing the industry average. And I, and I said, well, why do we tolerate that? Like, what? There's got to be a better way. So we, uh, we were Rockefeller Habits practitioners. We used quarterly themes to kind of, you know, focus on one big idea every quarter. And so we decided we were going to make our quarterly theme around reducing our frontline turnover. And we explored lots of ideas. And we landed on this idea called Dream On. And essentially, Dream On was the make- a wish charity model but internally for our staff so we went out we asked all of our staff you know hey if you could have anything if you could do anything if you could go anywhere you know what would it be and we, we launched this dream on program and um, we were super excited about it right well you could imagine three percent turnover of people that create an idea you know they think their idea is brilliant and the and the high turnover group has got to love it because it's such a good idea well there was no trust between those two groups. So we launched Dream On, um, and we literally don't get any responses in like a week. It was so, we were so naive and dumb, we actually thought maybe the email address wasn't set up properly. (laughs) It was nothing to do with that, it was a trust issue. So we, we did a little bit more marketing, and finally at about the two week mark, we get our first Dream On submission. And incredibly, it's a family that's in our St. Louis office that the mom and dad had gotten divorced, the dad did not act in, in very appropriate ways, and they were, the mom and two kids were living in a car. Like, you wanna find out, you wanna be humbled, first of all, as an entrepreneur, find out one of the people you're responsible for is homeless, First, that was the first big lesson. But more importantly, this was such an easy thing for us to fix, so her very humble submission was, I just want an apartment where you know I can live with my kids. So we put her in a hotel that night. We went out and bought furniture, we helped her find an apartment, we worked with the landlord and we didn't guarantee her rent, but we basically guaranteed her her first year. We helped her with the security deposit, bought some furniture. 2 days later she's in an apartment. So now it's still 115% turnover and 3% still kind of some, you know, cultural differences there and and, and conflict and the funny part was, we're trying to get you know the program launched and get everyone excited about it, but one of our rules was, everything's confidential, so we're not going to share. If, you, if your dream gets granted, we're not going to tell anyone what it was. It's up to you if you want to share. So here we have this great story, and then we can't share it. So we went to her and said, it's confidential, we're not going to share it. And she said, not share it, I'm telling anyone that'll listen. This is the most incredible thing that's ever happened to me. And so she tells the story. We were, you know, at the time, probably 20 locations in the U.S., and it spreads like wildfire. Amazingly, two weeks later, another, the second dream submission, another employee, same situation, bad divorce, series of unfortunate events. She's living in a truck, not a car. We do the same thing. And and 250 dreams later, they were the only two of that style that we ever had. But unfortunately, they were back-to-back. Well, then that story spreads and the, and the program takes off like wildfire.
0: And what did that do for your employee relations?
1: So it did a bunch of stuff, but m- most importantly, it, A, started to repair the trust between those two groups, but it brought a level of empathy to the salaried employees that they never had before. And the example I always like to give, imagine you have a frontline employee who's an, on an hourly wage, maybe even part-time with you single mom taking care of kids and, and she's driving to work. And then you have your CFO uh, also driving to work. And they both hit the same pothole on the way to work and get a flat tire. And what do we do? So the hourly employee, it's a real crisis, right? They're, they're, that flat tire, they probably don't have AAA, first of all. They probably don't have insurance for the tire they probably don't have an alternative way to get to work. So now, they're stranded, they have to figure out a way to get to work, they're gonna be late, they come into work late, and what do we do? We sit them down and say, this is the third time you were late, you have to sign this form, you get two points, if you get 10 points, you're gonna get fired, and we just rain on their parade, right? So
0: Which is what most people do. It's what we do,
1: right? They've just had a crisis, but because they're an hourly employee and they have rules they have to follow, We throw their crisis out the window, we show no empathy, and we just make their day even worse. And they actually come in in fear because they know from past experience, because they're late, their day is probably gonna be lousy. And then we get all done with the lousy, and then we go now, go out there, sit down, and service our customers like a rock star, right? So we've just ruined their day. Their day started bad, we made it worse, and then we shove them out there to interact with our customers. Then the CFO, same story, comes in a half hour late. What do we do? Oh, I hit that pothole last week. I'm so sorry. Can I get you a cup of coffee? Is there anything we can do for you? Hey, I'll take you to the dealer this afternoon after they put the new tire on that doesn't cost anything because it's insured. And you know, and the the person that it impacted the least, we're the most empathetic to, the person that it impacted the most, we, we treat terribly. And, it was that kind of understanding just of that that frontline group and the challenges that they had and that they're you know the things they experienced in life came through a different lens and different filters. And empathy, I think, if, if you want to build a great culture with, with high employee engagement, empathy from the leadership team has to be one of the principal tenants. And
0: how did you manage to get that empathy into the leadership team?
1: We uh, we actually had every salaried employee, whether they had someone report to them or multiple people or, or no one every single day in fact it was on their desk in a frame it said what can I do today to make the employee experience better than it was yesterday yeah we had everyone in the company focused on that and it it literally kind of became our mantra like you know if you saw like a technology problem that was frustrating anyone would rush in and try and fix it or you know an issue in the parking lot where there weren't enough parking spaces and you know that's not a great employee experience how do we fix that like everything we looked at was about how do we make the experience better and if you get everyone aligned around that idea amazing things happen
0: so a question for you is when the company that acquired you in the end that you sold out to how did they find the culture
1: so we sold to a public company um they obviously had a, a leadership team in place and. We were a tiny little piece of their of their overall program. They took some of our ideas and Im- implemented them. They had bought another company that had a great culture, and and that leader actually went on to be the director of, of people experience at this company. But it was hard for them, by and large, to really pivot. And uh, you know, a lot of the stuff that we put together kind of fell by the wayside uh, at the public company. One one interesting thing, and it's philosophical, I guess, but. Uh, by the way, we banned the term HR, we call it the Employee Experience mm-hmm. Department, because I really believe the fundamental first job of HR is around employee experience. Certainly compliance and paperwork and getting taxes right all matter, but I th- also think they should be focused on the experience, but interestingly at the public company, HR had this incredible level of operational decision-making authority. and the operators of the business actually were a little bit handcuffed and in a situation where there was a gray area the HR decision would win out over the operational Mm -hmm. decision and we were the exact opposite we you know we understood operationally you know the experience we wanted to create for employees and where we wanted to go and how we wanted to serve customers and HR was there really to serve that function not block that function.
0: Which originally is how it should have been
1: anyway. I, I agree Not everyone sees it that way, but that's how you and I are aligned that way, for sure.
0: So do you reckon reckon that all the people work that you did in the business had an effect on your multiples when you sold
1: (laughs) Yeah, so we were in the call center space. We did 24 buy side acquisitions. On average, we paid between three and four times EBITDA. And we ended up selling for over 14 times EBITDA. And... The fundamental drivers of that strategic exit value is we were a platform company. And we were a platform company because we had gotten really, really effective at doing acquisitions. And then acquisitions are all about, it's not about the deal you negotiate. It's about what you integrate and hold on to. So our integration strategy post-acquisition was really robust and and served us well. And it it was that acquisition strategy, and that was all driven by people. So, you know, on the first day, you know, here's the videos that we play, and here's how we talk about our culture, and on the second day, here's all of our, you know, branded uh, logoed apparel for the newly acquired company's employees to start to fall in love with our brand, and then we would buy every frontline employee in the company that that had to sit at a desk and, and be on the phones and serve the customers, every single one of them, air on chair, so the best office chair you could buy, the best headsets, the best computers. like every We so focused on that experience and the people side in these acquisitions that within literally a couple weeks, we had a, we had a team that we acquired that was willing to run through a wall for our brand. And that, I think, was part of what drove our exit value, for sure. I, I know that was what drove our exit value.
0: So if people want to know more about you, get in contact with you, etc., what do they need to do?
1: So the, the easiest way to find me is through the scalingup.com website. So I run the coaches community for Scaling Up. If you go to scalingup.com and click on the coaches section, uh, you can get to me through there. Uh, and then my other kind of company, we do middle market M&A, and that's through a company called Align 5. So align5.com, I would be there Wonderful, thank well. you so much.